Talking History on News Talk. Ill temper is worse than cholera. The one only kills the body, the other kills the soul. The cholera will pass, and should we still be alive, we will also have joy. The words of the Russian poet and writer Alexander Pushkin. Well, good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. And in tonight's show, we're looking at the life and work of the Russian writer and poet Alexander Pushkin. And we'll be finding out why he's considered the father of modern Russian literature. We'd love you to join our discussion. You can send us a text on 53106, text cost 30 cents, or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Now, last week we discussed the artist Goya and his extraordinary legacy explored the treasures of ancient Egypt and found out about the reality of violence in Dublin in the first phase of the War of Independence. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. The Irish Legal History Society, of which I am involved, will be having its spring discourse online on Friday the 26th of March. You know, it's free to join us virtually. Three papers by leading experts on the Constitution Constitutional changes in Ireland and Northern Ireland in the years 1920 to 1922 and you'll find out how to uh, join in on the society's webpage www.ilhs.eu Today is also Mother's Day so uh, we'd like to wish a happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers out there whether uh, you are near or far away or perhaps uh, no longer with us uh, whatever the situation you are in our thoughts today. Now tonight's debate is on Alexander Pushkin. Born in Russia in 1799 Pushkin has been called Russia's greatest poet and the father of modern Russian literature as well as the nearest Russian equivalent to Shakespeare. A man of action as well as a poet, Pushkin was exiled for a long period by the Tsar because his poem Ode to Liberty was found in the possession of rebels. His masterpieces include Eugene Onyegin, a novel in verse, and Boris Godunov, his most famous play. Pushkin died in a duel in 1837 at the age of 37. Pushkin has been praised for being first in time and first in quality, and in tonight's show we want to explore his life and his legacy, and also what lessons we can learn from the fact that his most creative period was in 1830, when he was in lockdown because of the cholera epidemic. So lots to explore, and to do with this with me, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Carol Emerson is Professor Emeritus of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Princeton University, an acclaimed expert on the Russian classics, as well as Russian music, opera and theatre. She is the author of the Cambridge Introduction to Russian Literature and the Uncensored Boris Godunov. Dr. Victoria Leva lectures in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University and is an expert on 18th, early 19th and early 20th century Russian literature and culture. And she's written on sartorial and spiritual searching in Russian culture using Pushkin's The Captain's Daughter as an example. Professor Michael Basker is Professor Emeritus of Russian at the University of Bristol, where he also served as Dean of Arts. Renowned for his insights into Russian literature and especially the works of Pushkin, his publications include an edition of Pushkin's Eugene Onyegin as well as The Bronze Horseman. 
Dr. Alexandra Smith is reader in Russian studies at the University of Edinburgh and is an acknowledged expert on Russian literature and poetry. And her books include Montaging Pushkin, Pushkin and Visions of Modernity in Russian 20th Century Poetry, and most recently, the brilliant co-authored study Poetic Canons, Cultural Memory and Russian National Identity after 1991. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to uh, Richard Pivar and Larissa Volokonsky, the multiple award-winning literary translators whose translations include novels, tales, journeys, the complete prose of Alexander Pushkin. But Carl, I might begin with you, and I might begin with you with a question about the fact that he is called the father of of Russian literature, but there was Russian literature before Pushkin. So why is he considered so significant and why is he so loved? (laughs) That's an awfully big question to try to answer, but let me say he wasn't, of course, the greatest Russian poet of all time, but he was the greatest poet in time. That is, in the years he lived, his timing was extraordinary. Russia secularized very late, and so, unlike England and Italy and France, wasn't until the 18th century that Russia had a culture that could be called thoroughly, originally European. And what Pushkin does is he absorbs these genres and translates them and begins to parody them all at the time that Russia's getting a readership and a book market. He himself was raised in French literature, and so he was of a sort of bilingual dialogic um, mode from the very beginning. I don't think, though, it's entirely his work. It's also his dazzlingly Byronic personality that makes him so timeless. Because unlike Dostoevsky, unlike Tolstoy, he wasn't really a witness. He didn't make a big deal about confessing things about his own life that he felt proud about or felt was prophetic or in some way necessary to confess. What he cared about was dignity, taking risks, living and dying with a certain amount of independence and rebellion. And of course, he did die very young. So he has a sort of energy bolt in Russian culture that is much too late to extract He's like Shakespeare. You can forget the man, but you can't contain him because his life was so concise and so much of what he wrote is now in the Russian language. And Michael, it's interesting, while researching the show, I looked up uh, how much Shakespeare had written by the age of 37, when, when, which Pushkin was when he died. And it, it is extraordinary how much he, he did. And then also the fact that, as Carl's alluding to there, combining it with this uh, larger than life personality, the debts, the affairs, the, the jewels, that he seemed to, to pack so much into this short life. That's absolutely right. I mean, he was immensely energetic and productive all through his life. And there's something kind of unique about Pushkin within the Russian canon, it seems to me, as well. One way that I try to explain that is by plagiarizing from a famous essay by Isaiah Berlin called The Hedgehog and the Fox, which is about Tolstoy. And Berlin quotes an aphorism from Archilochus that says, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows one big thing. And most Russian writers are hedgehogs, quite clearly, like Dostoevsky. Um, they were archetypally, obsessively concerned with a single idea they go back to time and time again. Pushkin is the archetypal fox. He's flitting endlessly from one thing to another, just tirelessly, and the energy is amazing. So as in his writing, he goes through a whole series of different things. 
narrative poems, a, a novel in verse, a Shakespearean drama. We've got little tragedies, we've got prose parodies, a supernatural tale, a historical novel. I could go on. And then Holt is an unfinished project. He's trying his hand at everything. And that's one of the reasons that he's so productive for Russian literature in the future, because he's flitted across everything there is to do. The same goes for his use of language, in a way. He's compounding different possible modes of expression, different usages. And you see it in his life, too. Um, tirelessly looking for new experience and change and new people. And he's there in relation to ideas also. I mean, he's not an ideologue. He's not got one big idea. But he's always testing and probing and trying to encourage the reader to think about what he's saying. So he's challenging you to think rather than telling you what to think. It's more about how to think that matters when you're reading Pushkin. Um, and he's fascinated by the contrarieties of different viewpoints. And this lends him something, I think, unique in Russian, but it also explains again, as I said, why he's so productive for Russian literature as a whole. I hope that makes some sort of sense. And Michael, he comes from this minor aristocratic family and would you consider him, he seems to get involved in politics and kind of caught up in, in that, that revolutionary ferment and comes to the attention of the Tsar who, who seems to take it on himself to, to monitor and, and the state is monitoring what he's writing and, and censoring it. And uh, uh, it, it's very interesting the way in the 1820s he's, there is such attention given to him and his work. He became really very popular in the 1820s. Um, but there are two Tsars in play here. There's Alexander I and Nicholas I. And of course, Alexander died in 1825, and that led to a revolution, an up the first uprising in December 1825. Bushkin got himself exiled before that. He was exiled in 1820, when he, age of, age of 2021. And as you said at the beginning, one of the reasons for that was an ode that he wrote to freedom. But he's not actually that revolutionary. He's talking there about the need for monarchs to follow the law, basically, um, and behave in a suitable way. So it's almost a praise of constitutional monarchy. I think what got him into trouble as much as what he wrote is the title of the poem, which went round in manuscript and um, was circulated by people far more revolutionary than Pushkin, but also his fiery temper. Um, he went into writing epigrams on all and sundry and these were outpourings of satirical irritation at people in power at their hypocrisy their venality and so on and that got him into as much trouble as his political views it seems to me um but he was exiled and he had quite an easy time in exile to begin with he went to the south of russia um into not very um not very exacting service in the government. But then he got himself into more trouble. And again, I see the sort of the fiery temperament. Um, he had an affair with his um, his boss's wife, basically, in Odessa. He wrote some letters that were unwise about atheism, knowing probably that the letters were read. And that got him exiled to his family, his family estate for two years. And there in isolation, he did a lot of writing. Um, and thought about his relationship to the Tsar and came back from exile. He was called back from exile after the December rising, uh, after the December uprising by the new Tsar, Nicholas I. And he really said about one-to-one -one 
relationship with Pushkin as Pushkin's personal censor, so it seemed. And Pushkin had great hopes for the new regime of Nicholas I to begin with. And his relationship with Nicholas through the last 10 years of his life was quite a difficult one, um, as one would expect. And Pushkin's revolutionary views are really quite difficult to pin down. It seemed in some ways he became quite conservative and politically nationalist as he went along. Um, but that's not necessarily the image that's projected of him, certainly by the Soviets and by lots of Pushkin's readers and supporters ever since. And Michael, it's interesting when the pandemic started last year, there were a lot of pieces in in in, in various uh, outlets like the the Economist about about Pushkin's own lockdown and how he'd been so creative during uh, uh, the cholera epidemic, and uh, it seems to have allowed him to to focus on on his works and and finish so many things he had been working on. It's quite astonishing the amount that he wrote in six week period, essentially in in eighteen thirty. But he had a couple of periods like that. And in an odd way, he wrote in short bursts. And as Carol said at the beginning, he spent so much time living and investing so much energy and everything else that was going on around him. He almost got to be confined to one space to pour everything out in creative outbursts. And autumn was the time of year when he liked that most. But quite early on, before he was exiled, his friends did things to almost lock him away so you would write, and then you get on with living again, with doing something different, with womanizing, gambling, playing cards, um, fighting duels, whatever. There's an awful lot going on, and writing was just one of those things. And the circumstances that forced him to write, <laughs> something we should feel really grateful for still, what comes out of lockdown. So the last five or six years of his life, he complained endlessly. He wanted peace. He wanted to get away from St. Petersburg and society in order to write. And yet he never quite did it. And he kept pulling himself back into the, the social world as well and the excitement of being with people and talking to people um, and indulging in life to the full, I think. Alexandra, it's very interesting. We could do the entire show on the very exciting private life of Pushkin looking at his jewels and his and his affairs and different relationships and his friendships and so on and, and almost miss out on, on on his extraordinary writing and, and I wonder when when we look at his poetry and assess it what is it about it that makes his poetry so compelling well I think uh, that his long poem the bronze horseman is extremely important for understanding Russian modernity, because he's already talking about the responsibility of Zars or the responsibility of the government for people who are faced with horrible disasters. So I think it's a it is a very interesting poem that speaks to us today. And he talks about a humble person who is not privileged and who is completely devastated and he's driven to madness. Uh, by the flood that happened in real life in 1824. So I think this is just an idea of being empathetic towards people who are not privileged, who are affected by natural disasters, by horrible circumstances, and so on. So I think this is extremely appealing, because the way how he writes in his lyrics as well, you could 
find um, a human touch, really, that a very simple sort of way of expressing um, not only a sense of dignity, as Carol uh, has pointed out, but also, I think, this compassionate view of people. And Victoria, what do you think is his, what was his impact on, on Russian theatre? Because uh, he also wrote very significant plays and, and also I suppose he had an impact then on, on Russian music as well because later in the 19th century Tchaikovsky put so many of his works to music and uh, and thus introduced his, his works to a, a, a new audience as well and some would be familiar with Pushkin through, through Tchaikovsky as well as through uh, the originals. Um, well, Pushkin's contributions to drama are actually quite um, modest, uh, and a few of his dramatic pieces have never been completed. Uh, so we can really speak about his historical play about Boris Godunov, and also his four one-act uh, plays called uh, Little Tragedies, in which he explores the psychology of passions. It is hard to compare these works, and... Uh, uh, because they are different in their form and topics, but I would say that both are masterpieces in their own ways and deserves our deserve our attention. His historical drama is perhaps more widely known, also because of Podest Musevsky opera. Uh, Pushkin reflects on um, Russian there, and perhaps also uh, on on Russian and not only on Russian history. And this is a play about the first successful uprising that overthrows the power. And this is a true, truly a work of genius. Uh, here Pushkin actually reflects on that on the times of fundamental changes. Um, this is a time when entire political system and perceptions of power become challenged, uh, with natural lines of succession being broken. Um, which is an, which is manifested in different uprising, and uh, Pushkin also understands that enlightenment can lead to atheism, and he actually himself took some lessons in atheism during his exile. Uh, so in the play, uh, the prototype for Pimen, a monk who writes a chronicle and discloses Boris's uh, Godunov's crime. Uh, to Atrepiev, who will be the future imposter, is actually Karamzin. Uh, and the image of Atrepiev is to some extent modeled on Pushkin of this period. And uh, uh, Pushkin takes off where Karamzin has left. Uh, on the one hand, Pushkin portrays autocracy and ability um, and those who are close to them as falling out of grace. Uh, and um, Atrepiev as an imposter um, He's just a weapon in their political intrigues. They don't care about his real identity, but neither Trepiev has any firm political or ethical beliefs. Uh, he only masterfully exploits uh, the situation. Uh, but here Pushkin actually understands the main paradox in people's belief that on the one hand they believe in Boris's crime, uh, but on the other hand uh, they also believe in Dimitri's, uh, and that's... Uh, the killed, um, I mean, um, uh, uh, the descendant of the throne uh, uh, who is killed. Uh, uh, so they believe in his miraculous survival. So, uh, so they see Atrepiev as the tsar, uh, as the tsar deliverer, uh, and actually believe that he is uh, a real tsar. And so these beliefs in high justice and miracles allow Atrepiev and Pushkin uh, to resurrect Dmitri. 
uh, and Pushkin studies uh, some deeply ingrained ethical element in the people. Therefore, he aligns goods and people's judgment at one point. Uh, uh, and Atrepiev's succession leads to the next crime. And so uh, the story is actually framed uh, with two massacres of innocents. And the genius of Pushkin lies uh, in the fact that he intuitively found these paradoxes in people's way of thinking and explores these paradoxes uh, and what they could lead to. Uh, and he also understands that orthodoxy and uh, sacralization of power which is actually, I mean, sacralization is pagan in its origin, can be uh, a coin with, uh, with two sides, so to speak. And as a Chekhovian gun can go off and lead to a different scenario. Um, so after the December surprising, Pushkin returns to um, uh, reflections on Christian ethics uh, and uh, and Pushkin shoots himself in his Achilles heel, so to speak, uh, um, because uh, um, he writes most of the play before the uprising, but then adds uh, just one line after the uprising at the end of the tragedy about people keeping, keeping silence. And, and before that, when he started writing this work, he placed uh, poetry above ethics. So now ethics ethics doesn't allow uh, um, these people to rejoice in, in a type of succession to the throne. And so, you know, Pushkin uh, kind of, you know, kills <laughs> himself in this play to some extent. Um, and, and I think what's important uh, when we are thinking about Pushkin is uh, to understand that there are a lot of paradoxes and he discovers these uh, paradoxes in culture. And so this is uh, something that's very interesting. There is also a lot of art of um, um, subtle sedition or even uh, um, probably better to say assertion in Pushkin. And I think he, among the sources, I mean, he reads Shakespeare for paradoxes, for example, uh, but he's, uh, or what we call negative capability, but he also reads the Bible. And I think the language of the Bible, this enigmatic language, which uh, uh, this un anti-dogmatic language attracts him. And, you know, he engages uh, with Christianity more and more, you know, as as his life proceeds. Very good. Uh, very, very, very good. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Victor. I'll just stop, stop you there and we'll return to that. But uh, Brian has sent in a, a, an interesting text saying, please remember Pushkin's wonderful short stories like The Queen of Spades. And that's one of those supernatural stories that uh, Michael was referring to. And of course, also uh, put to uh, music by Tchaikovsky. It became one of his famous operas. Michael, we have to go to a a quick ad break now, but uh, I was hoping you might maybe give a, a, us a reading from uh, one of your favourite pieces of Pushkin. Before the break or after? Uh, maybe now, if, 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 if you have a piece. Um, I've got some lines in front of me from the narrative part of the Gypsies. Um, the story of a young man who flees the law and, and the constraints of European civilised society in such a freedom and fulfilment in exotic adventure with the Gypsies. And he joins a band of gypsies, takes up the gypsy girl who seems to live happily for two years with him. Then she gets bored, takes up a gypsy lover, and he murders her and her lover in a fit of vengeful jealousy. And the lines I've got here are from the woman's father's imperious father, who addresses Eliaka in judgment the morning after he's murdered the daughter at the end of the narrative. The old man came up and spoke. 
Leave us, proud man, he says to Eliakim. We are uncultivated. We have no laws. We do not torture, do not execute. We have no need of groans and blood. But with a murderer, we have no wish to live. You were not born for an uncultivated lot. You want freedom for yourself alone. Your voice will be fearful to us. We are timid and good at heart. You are bold and wicked. Leave us then. Farewell. May peace be with you. I can't resist a couple of lines in Russian. Astashnas gordi chaleria, mudiki nyatanas zakonas, miterzaim, mikaznim, minuj the krovina mistonas, no jitsubitsi mikhatim, my robki dabri doshoil, tizol ismel astarjenas. That'll do in Russian, I'm sure. It seems to be a path of dramatic peace. And I could say quite a lot about the contradictions that have inherent in it. Um, but it may be you want to go to the break, and I shouldn't be doing that right now. No, absolutely brilliant. And uh, wonderful to hear the original Russian as well. Well, it ties in very nicely with the people I'm going to be talking to after the break, uh, two award-winning literary translators of Pushkin, and to find out what it's like to be a husband and wife team uh, working together, translating Pushkin and to translate him into English. So that's all coming up right after the break. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of Alexander Pushkin. And I'm delighted to be joined for this part of the show by Richard Pavir and Larissa Volokonsky, the multiple award-winning literary translators whose collaborative English translations of classic Russian literature are widely acclaimed and world famous. Their translations include novels, tales, journeys, the complete prose of Alexander Pushkin. And you're both very welcome. Richard, can I begin with you and where Alexander Pushkin uh, ranks? Where, where is he in the canon of Russian literature and how significant a writer is he? It's very hard to explain that, uh, uh, what Pushkin represents in Russia, because he's, he's an extremely, he's a central figure. Um, what I might say is that, uh, that you know, Peter I, the emperor, the first emperor of Russia, he turned toward Europe and very consciously uh, seeking culture, trade, and so on. Uh, Pushkin did something very similar to what Peter did for the Russian civilization in Russian literature. There's an, a rebirth of Russian literature through his work. Uh, and this was in the 1820s, 1830s. He lived a very short life. He was 37 when he died. Uh, it was a sort of it was a romantic period, but but Pushkin's work is has both romantic quality and perfect classical qualities in a very living sense. He's, he didn't imitate neoclassicism, but his, his forms are perfect, never cold, never calculated, but but perfect. And, and natural, very natural. Very natural and, and impersonal. That's an important point. He even made, he was a great reader of Byron, for instance, but, but he, made, he objected to Byron always inserting himself in his work. Everyone turned out to be some form of Byron. Pushkin is the opposite. He's never present in his work. He's always simply the voice that, that speaks it. But it's never cold, never calculated. It's, I don't know how to explain it. It's simply perfect. 
And he wrote in all forms. He wrote lyrics from the very early age. He wrote narrative poems. He wrote a novel in verse, Yevgeny Onegin. Uh, he wrote a long Shakespearean sort of drama, Boris Godunov. He wrote short plays. He called them little tragedies. Uh, he wrote uh, prose, tales, prose. He was almost the founder of Russian prose. Epigrams. And, yeah, he wrote epigrams. He wrote criticism. He wrote uh, notes. Uh, and Larissa, is that why his voice as a poet is so distinctive? Because it is so natural and because it doesn't have that coldness? Well, well Richard pronounced the word perfect already. <laughs> I will pronounce the word harmony. You know, it is, it is very difficult to explain what Pushkin means for us. Uh, the words like delight, happiness, mirth come to mind. Um, uh, but the main, if you ask for a one dis distinctive qu uh, quality, it's harmony. And as we know, it's a rare quality in our social life, in our personal life. Um, and um, what I mean is, uh, when I say harmony in Pushkin, it, is that the, the, there is uh, there is suffering, but there is also joy. There is beauty. There is love. There is humor, and it, uh, the, 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 there is there is death, grief, darkness, all these bad things and good things, and it all coexists in him in the right proportion. He even uses this phrase in his uh, short pl uh, play, Mozart and Salieri, uh, about harmony, what just proportion. Um, and uh, when the, you have darkness, but then it's all, I, I must say this word, it's redeemed, because there are higher things that Pushkin portrays in his poetry. It's like honor, dignity, gratitude, and laughter, no, laughter. Pushkin is light. He can be very funny. He is capable of laughing at himself. He is, he is simply perfect. As rich, I come back to the word perfect. And um, yes, this this quality of lightness. It's very hard to explain it. Um, it's it's uh, it it elevates his work all the time. It's, there's no heavy rhetoric, there's no heavy ideas, there's no heavy uh, preaching at all. And this is what I was coming to, is uh, very important what Pushkin is not. Because Pushkin is never psychological. He shows, but he doesn't, doesn't dig, doesn't pick in some lower depth of his own soul or in other people's uh, minds. <clears throat> He's not never moralistic. He, he doesn't raise social, so to speak, issues. Uh, he doesn't analyze social evils, but she sh he shows society. He never tells us what he thinks. He simply shows, and the way he shows makes us happy. 
it's 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 very it's a mysterious quality. Uh, Richard is my witness. You know, I you say Pushkin, and they start laughing and crying at the same time exactly. because he make you happy. He makes you happy. I think our listeners will find it inspiring to hear you both speak so passionately about Pushkin. I'd love to ask you about the art of translation. How challenging it, is it to translate Pushkin into English? Ah, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, depends what depends what uh, you want to translate. It's very challenging. It's, um, you see, well, everything that we said, Richard and I, you know, it, it's complex. You know, Pushkin is it, superficially, one can say, he's simple. But his simplicity is bottomless. There's so much underneath. And when you try to, uh, and it's all bound with language, with the with Russian language. And, you, and it is very difficult to convey in, 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 a, in, a, in any other language. Because just don't languages don't coincide. There is a a line I would like to quote simply uh, because every time Larissa reads it, she weeps. <laughs> Although it's not sad at all. It's not sad. <laughs> it's a it's a line from one of the short tragedy little tragedies. Uh, and it goes in Russian: "Imoria gdje bezali karabli." Yeah, which means something like, and the sea where ships are flitting by. But this, you see, she laughed. Brilliant. And I was hoping, <laughs> and I was hoping you might be willing to do a, a short reading for us. Well, we will, but have we come to that already? I'm afraid so. Uh, the the, yeah. the the march of time, as as Pushkin would know. But uh, I don't know if there's a particular favorite that you have that you'd like to share with our listeners. Let's read then from Feast in Time of a Plague. We translated this this last uh, spring when the confinement began. We translated the short play from the cycle, so-called cycle, uh, Little Tragedies. And one of them is called Feast in a Time of, of Plague. <laughs> Feast in a Time of Plague. Russian doesn't have articles. So. Yeah, right. I never get it right. And um, in this um, play, there is a hymn to, to, to the plague. Uh, so I'll read it in Russian. Uh, it's not the, it's not uh, long, and Richard will read it in English. Когда могущая зима, как бодрый вождь ведет сама на нас косматые дружины своих морозов и снегов, навстречу ей трещат камины и весел зимний жар перов. Царица грозная, чума, теперь идет на нас сама. И льстится жатвою богатой, И к нам в окошко день и ночь Стучит могильную лопатой. Что делать нам и в чем помочь? When, like a bold chieftain, Mighty winter swoops upon us With his troops of shaggy frost and snow, We meet him with crackling fires And merry feastings glow. The terrible queen, the plague, now goes against us all and hopes for a rich hall, and her grave digger's spade keeps rapping at our window. Will none come to our aid? 
As on mischievous winter, on the plague we'll shut the door, light lamps and drink still more, merrily our minds to drown, and in a swirl of feasts and dancing, exalt the plague's renown. There is inebriation in battle, on the brink of a black abyss, in huge waves and churning darkness of the furious ocean's rage, in the Arabian desert sandstone, and in the breathing of the plague. All, all that threatens death for the hearts of mortals hides inexplicable delights, even a pledge of eternal life, happy one who can find and know them amid such storm and strife. And so, praise to thee, plague, we fear not the grave's dark pall, we're undaunted by your call. Our foaming cups we raise and drink the rose maiden's breath, though it too be filled with plague. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Richard and Larissa. You have brought the words of Pushkin to life for us. Uh, such energy, such passion. I think our listeners will find it uh, truly inspirational. So thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Thank you. Uh, two absolutely brilliant literary translators, Richard Pavir and Larissa Volokhonsky. Uh, absolutely brilliant there. We'll be back with more on the life and work of Pushkin right after this break. Talking History on News Talk. Well, good evening and welcome back as we look at the life, work and legacy of uh, of Alexander Pushkin. And I'm joined by a brilliant panel of experts, Professor Carl Emerson, Prof- uh, Professor Michael Basker, Dr. Alexandra Smith, Dr. Victoria Eve Leva. And before the break there, we heard from the brilliant uh, award-winning translators, Richard Pavir and Larissa Volokonsky. Uh, Carl, can I ask you about uh, how he writes women characters? Because he, he seems to understand women and say, for example, Tatiana in Eugene Onegin uh, is is much praised that it seems to be something that he's particularly talented when it comes to writing. He's terrifically talented with women, but he's terrifically talented with human beings. And I don't know if he uh, is entirely honest always. He's so, as we've said several times, mobile as a personality and as an energy irresistible to women, although rather unprepossessing physically, and his female portraits are always respectful and profound. Just take the two women that mattered the most, his wife, one of the most beautiful women in the Russian Empire. He married her in 1918, pardon me, 1830, when she was a teenager, and he molds her in letters written in Russian, unusual in the time, usually you write only in French, to women, Uh, into the sort of woman that could become for him a muse. And the muse that's really most powerful in Russian literature is Tatyana Ladina, young, naive, passive. Everybody's in love with her. Pushkin is, the narrator of Eugene Hanyagin, and Eugene himself is, and Tchaikovsky is. But uh, it's not a heroine who sacrifices herself. This is a heroine who's able to control herself, feel deeply, but hook up to the inside of important things, not to the outside struggles or scandals. And that's what we have at the end of Eugene Onegin, if you know the opera or the novel in verse. She ends up a very high-status princess, morally upright, the sort of thing that Pushkin himself wanted in the 1830s, wanted to be that sort of model. He was a bit of a rebel, a scapegrace, and a something of a scandal monger when he was young, but after he married, he very much wanted to be what 
Tatiana herself was, and that was a sort of spirit of poetry that can only be produced properly under pressure. This is what we've been saying the entire evening, that Pushkin in lockdown, Pushkin under cholera, Pushkin's like liquid in a barometer. If you put pressure on it, it's going to rise up in the tube. And he wanted his marriage to be that, and he admired Tatiana for being that. It's simply not true that she sacrificed anything serious by not running off with Onyegin when he finally falls in love with it. Just the contrary. She's a muse that holds energy the way a poem holds energy. So my feeling about Pushkin and women is that it's a sort of aesthetics as well as being an erotics. Anybody can be erotic with someone else, but to actually be a poetics for someone else. And Pushkin did women like that. So I think his portraits of them are terrific. I'd love to hear what the others think about that. Very good. Michael, I might bring you in on that as well. That It's, it's interesting when there's kind of, he, he doesn't attempt to be moralistic, but there's always perhaps a moral there. I think that's, that's right, absolutely right. I think Tatiana's a really interesting case. I mean, I agree with Carol entirely that she doesn't sacrifice very much at the end in giving up on Onegin, um, who at the beginning of the novel seems to be, is a worldly wise character. She's 17 or 18 years old when he first meets her. She falls in love with him because he's the only person around, basically, in a remote village in the country. Um, and she writes him a letter to say she's in love. And Onegin comes to talk to him in the kitchen garden, very uh, banal setting, and talks down to her, really, in a presumptuous way, and says, not everyone will understand you as well as I do. You need to learn to control yourself and your feelings. Um, and in the end, you'll marry happily, but I'm not born for happiness and marriage. And they part at that stage, more or less, after Onegin um, flirts with Tatiana's sister and kills her fiancé in a duel which shouldn't take place. And that's pretty disgraceful behaviour on Onegin's part. And two years later, Onegin turns up again in Petersburg where Tatiana is now married. And this time, he sees her as a, a, a desirable lady with a prominent position in society and falls in love with her. And he writes her letter now and asks her basically to become his mistress, to, to run away with him, forsake the husband. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that, in quite a long response. Now, there's a tradition in Russian, he gets in Tchaikovsky, that she's married to a, an old husband whom she doesn't really love. Um, and she's denying herself happiness by doing this. But in fact, precisely because, as Carol says, she's Pushkin's muse. She's a thinking person. And she actually sees through a naked. And she uses wonderful irony in the long speech that she makes to Onyegin after his letter that puts him down and suggests that he doesn't know how to control himself. And he doesn't know essentially how to find a niche in life, how to find freedom, an inner freedom, to exist as an autonomous, dignified, self-respecting human being within all the constraints that society imposes upon one. And women in society were particularly constrained, of course. But Tatiana grows into and finds an inner freedom, which is the, the goal, if you like, that I think Pushkin was working to through his life and his work as well, and was denied to many people around him. And that's why Tatiana is such a heroine. Um, and 
it's interesting that Pushkin's most successful character, if you like, is this female character at the end of Eugenia Onegin. It's some really nice texts coming in. One of our regular listeners, Elizabeth and Rahini on 53106 saying, Patrick's so full of joy after the last reading. Very powerful. Thank you. And Jason in Walkinstown uh, uh, making an interesting parallel between Pushkin and our own James Joyce, which is fascinating. And uh, uh, you could probably get a, a, a very interesting scholarly piece out of that. Carl, I've, I've, I've struggled to really understand uh, the circumstances that led to the duel, uh, which sees Pushkin being killed, because it seems like there was a French officer pursuing Pushkin's wife. And then this officer ended up marrying the wife's sister and the duel <laughs> happened anyway. And uh, it seems like a very complicated melodrama and and could almost be an entire show in itself. Yeah, Pushkin's duel is an amazing matter of combined honor and rebellion. I think it's been properly said that Pushkin was not a rebel in the sense that he was against the Tsar, against the Russian state. He was a highly disciplined person who felt that you had to behave in a certain way to realize your fate properly. And he felt that marrying this very beautiful woman, it was a very good and happy marriage, by the way. They had five kids in four years. I mean, well, not all of them were born, but they had the many conceptions four were born. And it was an amazingly sort of fertile and strong attachment for both of them. But the wife... The wife was courted by everybody, including the Tsar, who made poor Pushkin, who was a very famous poet, a Kammerjunker, which is a sort of court rank, in 1834, so that he could, the Tsar that is, Nicholas, could see this beautiful wife dancing at balls. Pushkin had better things to do and think about than to have his beautiful wife displayed to the eyes of the Tsar, but he had to sort of turn up, and it was true that an officer adopted son of a diplomat was courting Pushkin, just simply fell in love with Pushkin's wife, uh, wasn't able to control himself and was a very handsome looking fellow. And he did eventually marry Natalia Goncharova, Pushkin's wife's sister, in order to get access to the household. Pushkin was put in an impossible position. He had to make this duel a formal matter uh, he did not want to die, although I think it's been said before he very much wanted to leave the uh, terrible situation of the capital where he had no respect at the court, and he cared about having respect and rank at this point in his life. But he felt he had to go through with this duel, and uh, at the time he was extremely in debt. He gambled wonderfully, believed in gambling, believed in risk. In fact, all the characters that risk something and succeed land on their feet, win in Pushkin's tales, both poetic and prosaic. He loves risk, and he believed that somehow he would win this confrontation, but there was never a question that he didn't have to demand the confrontation. Now, whether or not the Tsar and his court, who did have wind of it, could have prevented it, this is something that none of us know for sure. Uh, but yes, for him, key was that he was a man of honor and that uh, it was not possible to uh, not defend his, his wife with this challenge. And so it all ends tragically for him. Alexandra, it's interesting when you look at the, the long-term influence that Pushkin had on, on other Russian poets and writers. It's something that uh, you see in, in, in generations, probably all the way up to the present. Yes, that is true. But uh, there is uh, um, 
myth that was created around Pushkin, the Pushkin myth. And so it seems that every generation of writers and poets wanted to mold their own Pushkin. For example, we were just talking about Tatiana, and Dostoevsky gave his famous speech in 1880 about Pushkin, and he put his own uh, interpretation forward, and he suggested that uh, Eugene was just a wanderer, he wasn't really part of Russian culture, and Tatiana somehow had a connection with Russian culture, with Russian peasantry, and therefore she was an, an ideal woman. She had the moral the, sort of the gravity. And the same happened with a lot of poets, because people wanted to, of course, to be engaged with Pushkin, because he was an extraordinary person. He started so many new things. And in some ways, uh, like St. Petersburg was, um, defined as um, as a window to Europe. So we we'll, we'll, we would say that Pushkin opened up a possibility of a dialogue between the West and Russia. So it is a question of identity that was often discussed in poetry. Uh, people wanted to establish again and again whether they're part of European culture, whether they're part of Russian culture, whether they have a special destiny that is very different uh, from other countries and so on. So I think that a sort of engagement is related really to the uh, um, ongoing search for a new Russian identity at a different stage of historical development. Very good. Now, Carl, we're almost out of time, but given that we've got such a great reaction to our readings, we thought we might close with a, a short reading from uh, some of your favourite Pushkin. Well, I'll simply do the first stanza of Yevgeny Yanyegin, which everybody knows by heart. Мой дядя самих честник правил, когда не в шутку за не мог, он уважать себя заставил и лучше выдумать не мог. Его премию другим наука, но, боже мой, какая скука спал ним сидеть и день, и ночь, не отходя ни шагу прочь. Какое низкое коварство полуживов забавлять, ему подушки поправлять, печально подносить лекарства, вздыхать и думать про себя, когда же черт возьмет тебя». Brilliant. And absolutely brilliant. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to give us a short uh, uh, part of it in English uh, to, to give us that extra insight? Oh, let's have, let's have uh, Larissa do that or Richard. Oh, I think they've gone. Uh, we've lost them. But anyway, oh. <laughs> uh, I, 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 if you don't have it there, that, that's okay. But the, the, could you give us maybe the meaning of it in a, in a proper I certainly can. I certainly can. My uncle, who was a man of extraordinarily high principle, when he fell seriously ill, he forced others to respect himself and felt well about himself too. His example is an example for all folks but my God, what a boredom it was to attend to a sick man night and day, not moving one step away, to have to pretend that you care for a man who's half alive, to adjust his pillow, to sadly bring him medicine, to sigh and to think, when will the devil take you? Now that was just a prose translation looking at the Russian. You can see how very difficult it is to put something like that, which is a wholly prosaic response to a dying uncle who's going to leave you his estate 
into anything like the gorgeous Onegin stanza. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, uh, that brings our show to an end. My thanks to my wonderful panel, Professor Carl Emerson, Dr. Victoria Eve Leva, Professor Michael Basker, Dr. Alexandra Smith, and we also heard from Richard uh, Pivir and Larissa Volokonsky. My thanks to my producers, Susan Cahill, Peter Malloy and Sand. It's Beethoven next week for the uh, St. Patrick's Bank Holiday Weekend and then two weeks' time, The Surrender of Japan and lots more. Uh, join us next week and the week after on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history. history. On News Talk.